this is Olivia, and you're listening to Bikini Drive-In on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. And today I'm joined by friend of the show, Talia Steele. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so yeah, our mission on Bikini Drive-In is to analyze horror and science fiction films through an intersectional feminist lens while combining elements of screen and media studies, arts criticism, and women and gender studies. Our knowledge and experience will hopefully provide you with access points to feminist theory, art history, and film critique while using horror and science fiction genres as a site of discourse. Since we'll be discussing portrayals of horror and violence, content warning, listener discretion is advised, etc. Also, spoilers ahead. This week, we are discussing Toby Hooper's 1974 film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. This is the movie that Rex Reed called the most horrifying motion picture I have ever seen. This film is positively ruthless in its attempt to drive you right out of your mind. It accomplishes everything it sets out to do with brilliance and unparalleled terror. This is the horror movie to end them all. called the most horrifying motion picture I have ever seen. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre from New Line Cinema. Two siblings and three of their friends en route to visit their grandfather's grave in Texas to investigate reports of vandalism and grave robbing end up falling victim to a family of cannibalistic psychopaths and must survive the terrors of Leatherface and the Sawyer family. Talia, what's your history with Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Uh, well, the first time I saw this movie, it was a school night at like 2 a.m. And I couldn't sleep and I just decided, oh, like this would be a great movie yeah. to watch. <laughs> uh, super late. And so, yeah, I watched this movie in full. Like I didn't stop watching it. And it made me so tense and I it like really messed with me. It was so disturbing. Yeah. And I loved it. Like I watch it every year. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I forgot how tense it is without, yeah. like, there are, is obviously gore to it and some jump scares, but mostly yeah. just, like, dreadful and tense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't seen this movie in years, so I was really glad to rewatch it for the show. Um, yeah, it's so unsettling, disgusting, probably stinks, and hot, while simultaneously <laughs> being very beautiful. Yeah. Somehow. Uh, <laughs> the dinner scene is very hard for me to watch, and I think mm. that's just because, like, Sally's screaming and everyone's just laughing at her, and it's just this disgusting room. Yeah. Um, except I do love that Leatherface dresses up for dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's kind of cute. Tuxedo. Look cute. So excited. <laughs> Got us some makeup on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have a quote here from uh, Recreational Terror Women and the Pleasures of Horror Film Viewing by Isabel Christina Pinedu. 
And she describes uh, the characteristics of the postmodern horror film. Let me just get it here. So despite the enormous breadth of films falling under the rubric of horror, there are, are identifiable elements that define horror in general, classical horror and postmodern horror. She locates five characteristics five characteristics that operate together to constitute the postmodern horror film. So one, the horror constitutes a violent disruption of the everyday world. Two, horror transgresses and violates boundaries. Three, horror throws into question the validity of rationality. Four, postmodern horror prudiates narrative closure. And five, horror produces a bounded experience of fear. And she goes on to say... Um, casual logic also collapses in the postmodern horror film. Thus, there's no explanation for the murders, cannibalism, dismemberment, and the violence that takes place in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Despite the documentary claims in the prologue, the film not only fails to provide an explanation of events, but even language collapses in the final 30 minutes of the film. The lengthy sequence in which Sally is pursued, captured, and tortured and escapes is dominated by the Son of a chainsaw, her relentless screams, groans, and pleas, the killer's taunts, bickering, laughter, and mutterings, and an ominous soundtrack. The few lines of dialogue serve not to anchor us in the rational, in the rational but to demonstrate how demented the killers are. And I feel like that also kind of leads into our next topic of astrology, which the, there is no explanation for the violence. Yeah. The condition of retrogradation is contrary or inharmonious to the regular direction of actual movement in the zodiac and is in that respect evil. Hence, when malefic planets are in retrograde and Saturn's malefic, okay, their malefice is increased. Have you been doing those readers digest word power columns again? Gary, it just means Saturn's a bad influence. It's just particularly a bad influence now because it's in retrograde. super weird um i was looking on astrology.com for information because um they're like pam is talking about saturn in retrograde mm -hmm. like kind of in the beginning of the scene mm -hmm. um in the opening scene of the film we see imagery of like a dead armadillo mm -hmm. close-ups close -ups of a corpse in a field um with radio recordings and um in the early scene the group is in the van pam reaffirms what they what we just saw mm -hmm. in the opening scenes layered like the layered suggestions of the dread that's to mm -hmm. come. Um, and she shares the bad news from her copy of American Astrology mm -hmm. that Saturn's in retrograde. And so I looked it up. Saturn in retrograde is a sixth planet. Six, six, six. Devious. Devious. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Saturn rules discipline, authority, and personal limits. Um, it, typical effects of Saturn transits is the pressure and sensation of burden, fear, and frustration, which is 
kind of interesting how Pam reads out Franklin's horoscope first, um, and then she says um, to Franklin, upsetting persons around you could make this a disturbing and an unpredictable day, oh, no. <laughs> which accurately describes yeah. <laughs> the experience he's about to have with the hitchhiker that yeah. they end up picking up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then so, yeah, he just frightens them and cuts Franklin's hand. It's a very... The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So... We started off with the sights of the rural Texas in this film, armadillos, it was down on the side of the road, so also like lots of roadkill, mm-hmm. um, desert-like atmosphere, hazy slaughterhouse, we see like signs of cattle kind of in the beginning of the movie as well, with they're like, they're sweating and drooling from the heat and just looking like in total despair as well, mm-hmm. which may be also foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a quote uh, from Mary Mackey, a feminist critic, her essay, A Review of Contemporary Media Massacre Women. Um, So it reads, In American folk mythology, Texas, more than any other state, embodies the cowboy ideal of the lone male who carves out a place for himself with his trusty Colt 45. For years, Texas was famous for being the only state where a man who caught his wife in bed with her lover had an automatic right to shoot her, while a woman who shot her husband under similar circumstances could almost be sure of being convicted of murder. Women have never counted for much in Texas, and the lives of the Slaughterhouse family, they don't count at all. One of the functions of violence against women in the cinema and in real life, for that matter, is to reduce them to such a state of total compliance. To the men in the audience, this fantasy of having absolute power over a woman is no doubt sexually exciting and one of the reasons for the popularity of the film. Um, So Sally, the final girl of the film, must subvert the patriarchal Texan society, which is represented by an all-male family, which is deranged and perverse and power for this reason is taken away from the family and then given to Sally as she tries to escape the madness. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Cool. Yeah, Yeah. Sally's great. And I I just love how she jumps out of two windows. Oh my God, I know. (laughs) That's so so impressive. And then she doesn't even, she doesn't even have a scratch, you know? (laughs) Yeah. The music in this is very distressing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird because I feel like there's um, lots of music, but it's also super silent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like high-pitched grinding sounds um, as the scene reveals the corpse in the opening scene, as mm-hmm. you can hear in that trailer. Um, and then as is the sound of a man intently groaning, screeching metal sounds, which maybe it's slaughterhouse sounds, mm-hmm. chains clanking. It's just like really upsetting to hear that 
it just makes everyone cringe and mixed with the environmental sounds like in the scene where Pam goes into the house you hear like clucking chickens and like wind chimes around the house um, and a lot of sounds you probably would hear in the south mm -hmm. on a hot summer day but like it's heightened and super mm -hmm. nightmarish mm -hmm. Um, and then all of this mixed with the powerful imagery of the disheveled rooms made of human remains and bones and feathers with that clucking chicken sound is just like plain unsettling to yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you could just like even smell how this room yeah, smells. Like mixed with it. all of that, yeah. it's just like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love how quiet this movie is. Like you mo it's mostly just like, yeah, like you said, like kind of atmospheric sort of machinery sounds or just like everyday sounds, but... But yeah, there is that sort of like, mm -hmm. yeah, unsettling element to it. Yeah. Um, most of the music, news, re news reports are diegetic, meaning that they are in the world of the film, coming through in the radio and used as exposition. And diegetic sound is any sound that emanates from the story world of the film. The term comes mm -hmm. from the word diegesis, diegesis uh, which is evolu evolution of a Greek term that means narration or narrative. Uh, the source of diegetic sound doesn't necessarily need to be seen on screen as long as the audience understands that it's coming from within the film. Um, and I, I think that this changes, um, to non-diegetic sound after Leatherface first grabs Kirk and slams the metal door in the house. Um, I love that the viewer doesn't get a sound cue when mm. Leatherface first appears, but yeah. it, the music starts after the door is slammed and it's just a slow, creepy, dreadful music. Yeah. Um, and non-diegetic sound also called commentary or non-literal Sound is any sound that does not originate from within the film's world. The film's characters are not able to hear non-diegetic sound. Um, and I have a quote here from Apocalyptic Americana from brightwalldarkroom.com by Stephanie Monahan. All of these sensory elements come together to create a cacophony of endless punishment for the characters and the viewer. The airlessness of the world stretches into the outer limits, and as soon as the violence commences, the outside world no longer feels accessible. The mechanical sound, sounds that rumble and squeal throughout the film, essentially compromising, comprising the soundtrack, weave the visual components together and change the environment from unsettling but harmless into horrid. These sounds, a generator struggling to stay on, a van sputtering and running out of gas, begin as seemingly uh, sort of normal noises to downtrodden rural life. But as the killings begin, these noises, are, these noises are transformed into harbingers of death, not only in the form of titular chainsaw, but also in the creeping realization that the aforementioned falling pieces of industrial technology may actually be fronts through which to trap and kill outsiders. Everything is corrupted, part of the mechanized, uh, mechanized animal slaughter that used to make up the town's economy, but now defies the final few hours of the protagonist's lives. Ooh. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, it was a cool article. Yeah, uh, the family and domestic mm -hmm. uh, part of the film. Mm -hmm. um, we see, you know, Sally have a lot of um, trauma that she goes through mm -hmm. and, you know, meeting their limit, but along with Franklin. Um, but as much as we see Sally, the final girl, she's chased through the woods with Leatherface, mm -hmm. wielding his almost like phallic mm -hmm. chainsaw. Um, she runs into like this barbecue stand or a gas station. I'm not even sure like what it actually is. Stand yeah, <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, to you know, find comfort from the cook, and then we learn it to be the father um, who props her up onto like this butcher block mm -hmm. and comforts her, um, and then he suddenly like shifts character, mm -hmm. like showing his true colors mm -hmm. and tying her up and throwing her into the bag into his truck. And I find it really odd that he just like shifts between these two personalities throughout the whole film. Like he's the father of Leatherface. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you know we later learn this and he shows traits of a father figure to Sally mm -hmm. which is really interesting like asking her if she is comfortable and then he quickly shifts back to being like this cannibalistic psychotic personality like poking and prodding mm -hmm. her mm -hmm. like viciously with a stick which is really messed up mm -hmm. and I find like of all the men in this family the father to me is the most disturbing because he comes off like so normal sometimes mm -hmm. um, and then he shifts between these two personalities saying things like, I take no pleasure in killing, mm -hmm. while he, like, laughs and howls back at Sally's screaming at the dinner table, and then she's, like, tied up, like, S&M style or hog tied because, what, I don't know, they plan to eat her. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and then, yeah, if he can comfort Sally, like, being a father figure one second and then tie her up and throw in her bag the next second, mm -hmm. then it, like, just reaffirms the fear of women having... of Fear of women have of any men being dangerous and untrustworthy, yeah. like just being a murderer. Just turn. Yeah. I think that kind of goes back to the idea of like boundaries being violated. Like you have this idea mm -hmm. of what this cook or this attendant is going to be like, yeah. and then he just like flips on it or even like what a father figure would be like. Yeah. Yeah. It's super unsettling. Yeah, it and is, it yeah. just like, as a female viewer of this, it just kind of like aged that paranoia yeah. all the more. Yeah. Right. Um, and then I have a quote here um, from an essay, Demythologizing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, written by Jeff Jesk. Uh, for, for the deepest sense, Sally has come home to herself. She should indeed be familiar with this house. Sally tells Kirk early in the film that she spent a summer night next door at her grandfather's house when she was eight, just after her grandmother died. In search of one family, here close to the center of her unconscious world, Sally has discovered another. Ironically, she finds a grandfather, but not the one she sought. Instead of a protector, Sally finds the paterfamilias of a family that collectively aims to kill and consume her. This monstrous family of displaced slaughterhouse workers exudes a pathology organized both by their victimization and by what they lack, the feminine. No civilizing influence introduced intrudes on their dinner rituals there's no grandmother here only the mummified remnants of one upstairs just as there is one missing grandmother in Sally's own life So yeah, I have another quote from um, Apocalyptic Americana by Stephanie Monahan. Uh, she states that it's difficult to untangle the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from the historical and cultural context in which it is conceptualized. Toby Hooper has never been cagey about the importance of the era's political climate and how it made up the DNA of this film. The America he was exploring in 1974 was internalizing a downward spiral of social breakdown, facing an uncertain and unsatiable identity, unstable identity in the post-Vietnam, post-Manson country. For more privileged, for more privileged kind of citizen, the sanctity of the American dream was being destroyed. Life as they knew it was under serious threat by forces that felt unearthly for uh, in their danger. But if you're one of the many who had been in, uh, incessantly exploited and bled by bled dry by U.S. hegemonic power, 
uh, you knew that the American dream had been perverse since its beginning. Its barbarism uh, obscured or packaged differently, perhaps, but never eradicated. As the friends drive past the slaughterhouse, they talk about the improvements in cattle killing technology, how it's much more humane now. However, the hitchhiker refers to the new way as a method that only served to put pe- people at work who's killing just as many, if not more, cattle. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting, mm-hmm. like, to almost put the Sawyer family in this sort of, like, sympathetic light. Yeah. Like, they're kind of just like this forgotten family in this forgotten industry. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Super weird. Yeah. Um, there's some little extras um, that I read about the filming condi- conditions, mm-hmm. uh, which is really weird. Um, I had no idea when I first saw this obviously but when I read about it I was super shocked um this film was an actual horror show behind the scenes mm-hmm. um according to an article on the New York Post and the book The Texas Chainsaw Massacre the film that terrified and rattled nation by Joseph Lanza the actors were forced to be set up be on set for 24 plus hours a day mm-hmm. in 46 degrees Celsius heat mm-hmm. oof and some of the actors hadn't washed or changed their clothes in five weeks for continuity. Um, the set was littered with dead dog and cattle parts and, like, rotting cheese for atmosphere, giving an unbearable rank odor. So I guess that Yuck. kind of uh, goes back to us talking about the music. And mm-hmm. it it really did smell that bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Sally in that infamous 10-minute long dinner torture scene while their face is supposed to cut her finger, but he grew tired and frustrated by the fake knife not working. So in real life, he did cut her finger and then oh. stuck it into the grandpa's mouth, who I had no idea was actually an 18-year-old kid at the time. <laughs> like, not, I mean, I, I didn't think it was actually, like, an old man, yeah. but I'm like, oh, wow. An 18-year-old kid. Um, and it was like a real reaction from Sally, or I guess Marilyn Burns, mm-hmm. the actress who played Sally. So it makes it feel like that much more uncomfortable watching yeah. that, yeah. knowing that she's actually suffering. It, yeah, from like it this. seems it feels disgusting and scary because yeah. it actually was disgusting and yeah. scary. Yeah. And while Burns was reportedly furious, Dugan, who played the grandpa, um, Lanzan writes, was less so uh, later saying, I didn't find out until years later I was actually sucking on her blood, which was kind of erotic, really. Ugh. That <laughs> makes me so uncomfortable. This whole movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that means it worked. Yeah, it yeah. totally, yeah. That was yeah. their plan all along. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then in the article, uh, Lanza also quotes Burns speaking to Hansen Leatherface in his 2013 memoir about the filming Chainsaw Confidential, as she recalled her terror as the entire ordeal. You scared me to death, she told him. I didn't know you really at all, and by this time, you're not sure if it's real or a movie. And snuff films were just coming out and at this time, and I'm thinking, this is too real. The leering, leering <laughs> when you're starting coming at me, that was oh, really scary. No. Or Marilyn. Oh, Poor angel. Marilyn. I know. Sweet angel. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of our, our discussion on Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. Um, if you have any questions or suggestions or want to continue conversation on Texas Chainsaw, you can feel free to email us at bikinidrivein at gmail.com or is that our Facebook page? <laughs> <laughs> um, also, there's a couple of events coming up. So um, Winnipeg Cinematheque, um, they have uh, the Aurora Gorealis Canadian Horror Series coming up for all of October. And Bikini Drive-In will be introducing and hosting a uh, post-screening discussion on Dead Ringers at 9 p.m. on October 23rd. 
And then again on October 31st at 9 p.m. for My Bloody Valentine. So mm-hmm. everybody should come and everyone should dress yeah. up. Yeah, that sounds so fun. Yeah. My Bloody Valentine Halloween. Yeah, it'll be perfect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Tyler, oh, for Thanks being so here. much for having me. This is great. Super fun. Yeah. I love talking about horror movies, especially yeah. Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. I yeah. really, yeah, I really enjoyed rewatching it. Yeah. Again. It's so good. I watched it every it's year, like so I said. It's just like, it, and it makes me so like upset every time, I but like, I love yeah. it so much, which yeah. is so disturbing. Yeah. And, yeah. I love it. I, yeah, I just, poor Sally in the dinner scene. It makes me so oh. uncomfortable. It's the worst scene. And like so drawn out. But it, yeah, it's so drawn out and there's so many close-ups of her face. It's just like her eyeballs. Like, I it's just it. like, it it's great. so good. It's so perfect. Like no yeah. other movie that I've seen has done something like that before. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey. Yeah, obviously yeah. very influential film. Yeah. <laughs> yes, very much so. 1974. Yeah. Good time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Do you like being smart and cool? Listen to Bikini Drive-In with Olivia and Jill every Sunday at 4.30 p.m. on CKUW 95.9 FM. You're listening to CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Our frequency celebrates diversity.